Well, good morning again. It is a pleasure to be present with you all. Um, I'm actually going to be here, like I said at the very beginning of the service, the next couple of weeks. So if you slipped in, uh, my name is Adam Caldwell. I was privileged to be one of the pastors here at Salem for about four years. About three years ago, I was moved to a couple of churches in the Kansas City area. Um, and then about a month went by and we moved back to St. Louis. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, <laughs> no, I thought I'd give you a little update on our family and how we're doing. Our family is doing really, really well. We live not too far from here. We're in Baldwin, so our boys actually ended up back in the same school um, that they were going to when they left. Our oldest just turned 10. He's standing up right down here, not to put him on the spot. Um, <laughs> Good job, bud. Uh, which is crazy because that means that I'm, I'm really old now and I have to wear button-up shirts and, and coats and shoes and I had to cut my hair. So, I know. But I'm going, I'm balding a little bit right here. So, just kind of made sense. Boy, you are a little stuffy uh, this morning. <laughs> I'm hoping to wake you up a little bit. Um, you're in trouble this morning. Because you're dealing with a contemplative introvert who hasn't preached in 10 months and likes to talk in front of people. So I've prepared for you this morning about a 50-point sermon. It's going to take me about an hour and a half. Um, so I hope you are prepared for that and you're settled in for that. No, I'm, I'm just kidding, of course. I'm trying to be mindful of that. Um, I know that we preachers uh, can tend to be a little bit long-winded, so I want to make sure that we... We, we get a good word, but get out of here on time to eat, right? Because I'm only used to going to church an hour at a time now, and I've been here for two, and I'm hungry. So we're in the Old Testament. We're doing this sermon series called Old School. I, I don't know about you, but I make goals each year. I find that um, making goals helps me be more productive. It makes me be more intentional about the life that I live. So one of the goals that I made this year, the personal goals, is to read through Scripture, all of Scripture, um, in one year's time. How many of you have ever done that? I've actually never done it. And I was saying at the earlier service, I think that I've read all of the Bible. I mean, I've been through seminary. I hope that I've read all of the Bible, but to be honest with you, I'm not quite that sure. I mean, there may have been a couple of verses in there that I've missed. So this has been a really good discipline for me throughout the, this 2018 in reading all of Scripture. And of course, um, there's a lot of really, really boring stuff in the Old Testament. I mean, I don't know, when, when was the last time you read the book of Numbers? I don't know how many times you have to take a census of people, but... Jeez, uh, it just kind of drags on and on and on. It reminds me of, how many of you ever read Lord of the Rings? Okay, so in the movies, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, they do this great thing where they jump from like action scene to Bilbo and Samwise and Mordor, where it's just kind of boring, right? Then they go to an action scene and Bilbo and Samwise and, and Mordor. In the books, it's all like one big section. You just have to read about Bilbo and, and Samwise and it's just boring. That's kind of like what the Old Testament can feel like sometimes. So my hope this morning is that we can take four verses. That's eight. Four verses. That's all we're going to talk about in the next two weeks. I want to take two verses from Deuteronomy chapter 5 
expand on those, talk about those. And then next week, I'm going to take two verses from Deuteronomy 6, specifically verses 4 and 5. Now, these verses are incredibly important to our faith. They are foundational, not only of the Christian faith, but of the Jewish faith as well. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is what's called the Shema. And, it's, and it reads this. So I'll give you Deuteronomy 6, 4. Does anybody know it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is our God. The Lord is one. Now, a lot of times we skip over that part and we go straight to the next part, which is you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then we kind of deal with that passage to, to figure out what that means. So next week, I'm really going to dig into those two particular passages. But what I want to do this week is kind of build up on chapter 5 why the, the Shema is so important for us in our faith and um, what we're supposed to, to do about that. Okay? Sound like a plan? All right. How many of you have ever lost something? Good. How many of you have ever lost your glasses? Uh-huh. How many of you have ever lost your glasses only to find that they were on your head? Yeah. Okay. So we, as um, biological beings have been given a gift. And sometimes this gift can work to our benefit, and sometimes this gift can work not to our benefit. So we all have, most of us in this room, um, we all have the ability to what's called habituate. Familiar with habituating? Let me give you an example of habituating. Our kids, I, I learned most of the things from, from my kids as a parent, but our two boys, um, unfortunately, don't have the ability to habituate. So here's what happens. Israel, the illustrious young man that he is, often comes up to us with pieces of clothing, his shirt or shorts, and he'll say, cut, cut. Right, bud? And what he's talking about is the tags on his clothing. So for Israel, he does, his body is biologically programmed not to habituate to that tag. So something that you and I put on, we might feel the tag when we first put it on, but we go about our day, we don't even remember it's there. Sometimes we even forget that we're wearing clothing, right? Because we habituate to that. Ezekiel has the same problem too. He recently had an EEG done because we were contemplating whether he's having some seizures and we just wanted to kind of rule that out. So he did a 48-hour EEG. So anybody have an EEG done? It's pretty invasive. Right? I mean, so here you got this little dude, he's, he's got fragile X, he's autistic, they've got to put all these nodes on his head. And our biggest fear was that he, he would never habituate to what's on his head and that he would just be, the, the expression we use is that his skin would be on fire for 48 hours. That's kind of what it feels like to him. Thankfully, um, he, he did great, actually. He did really great those 48 hours. Mainly, we have VeggieTales to thank for that. So... Um, you can Google VeggieTales if you don't know what it is. Maybe you've been living under a rock for the past 25 years, but that's okay. So this is a problem, and it's a good thing. Because not only do we habituate biologically to things, but our habits are also habituated, right? Obviously, the root word of habituate is habit. So... 40, and this is a big range, and science still kind of wrestles with this. By the way, we're going to talk 
philosophy, science, theology today kind of intermingle all of that. Um, I'm probably jumping into a little deeper waters, and some of you people who are in the scientific field can slap me around a little bit later after we get done with this sermon, but whatever. I'm just going to go for it. I'm only here for two weeks, so <laughs> here we go. Um, biologically speaking, we habituate as well. So 40 to 95% of the actions that we take in the world, they speculate, is subconscious. Did you catch that? 40 to 95% of what we do on a regular basis, the habits in our life, are subconscious. That means that we are walking around, talking, eating, having conversation, living life primarily subconsciously. Now here's where it's really good. If you have good habits, guess what? Those good habits are perpetuated by that subconscious. It's really, really great. This is why it's really important um, to instill grit in your life. As most people say, to be successful in life, you've got to have grit, the ability to overcome obstacles. Uh, or maybe perseverance is a habit that you've been able to put on. It's the same kind of thing for grit. You, you kind of work at things. The problem comes in when those habits that we've had installed or downloaded in us are negative. So maybe you struggle with procrastination. Anybody struggle with procrastination? We're at a church, you have to confess while you're here. I went to seminary with a, a, a friend of mine and he always wore this sweatshirt. It cracked me up. It said, procrastinators unite tomorrow. <laughs> Some of you will catch that in like two minutes. Some of us, though, we have self-destructive behaviors. The Apostle Paul addresses this in the New Testament when he says, I, I don't do what I do want to do, and I, and I do do what I don't want to do. do, do. Um, some of you will catch that too. Our unconscious behaviors, 40 to 95% of them, can be really destructive to us if we're not aware of them. These are things like alcoholism. Um, these are things like... <laughs> quite frankly, laziness. Um, these are things, anything negative that has been kind of hardwired into your programming of life that we need to address. So, how do we do that? There's two things that I want to address, two questions that I really want to dig into when setting up this, what's the importance of the Shema? The first one is this. Are we shaped, and you've probably heard this before, are we shaped by nature or nurture? Right? Are we shaped by nature or nurture? The other question that I want to wrestle with is, is it more individualistic or is it more collective? What, is, what do those things look like? Okay, sound good? So Deuteronomy 5, verses 9 and 10 get to the crux of the issue. Just to kind of bring us up to speed. So Deuteronomy, written by Moses, in these two particular chapters, he's re-examining and retelling the people of Israel who they are and whose they are. So what's happened up to this point? For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. Y'all remember that part? Okay. Moses comes in, um, has this duel with Pharaoh, gets him to say, let my people go, and they go out into the desert. 
So what, what's going on here? You've got a people who have lived generation after generation after generation in a slavery mentality and in a slavery mindset. So part of what God and Moses are working on collectively as a culture in this people is reshaping their identity of who they are and whose they are. So in chapter 5, uh, Moses reiterates the Ten Commandments. These kind of bylaws that the Lord hands down to the community to establish order, to establish relationship amongst themselves, so that they won't slip back into some of their old patterns. I'm reminded of uh, the history of the world, part one. Remember that? When he comes out and says, the Lord has given us these 15, these 10 commandments, right? So the 10 commandments are the foundation of the bylaws, the the, the laws by which the community are going to live by. But why? Why do we need the Ten Commandments? Next week we're going to talk about how he boils it down even more. But here's the reason. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. Do not bow down to them or worship them. Them being gods. And the gods really represent other cultures. So remember, God and Moses are working on reshaping a people group, reshaping a culture out of the norms that they've known for hundreds and hundreds of years. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments now answer honestly does that passage bother you because it bugs the heck out of me i'm trying to wrap my head around this picture of a of a god who somehow generationally curses and and generationally you know brings downfall to people who supposedly hate him and all this stuff and i'm wrestling with this And here I am committed to reading through the Bible in a year, wrestling with this Old Testament stuff. What do I do with this? What do I I make with this? Do any of you get to that point when you're reading the Old Testament scriptures? Just, yeah, it's hard. But here's what I've kind of discerned. Anytime you come across a passage like that that makes you uncomfortable, don't shy away from it. Kind of lean into it. Start wrestling with it. Start asking God, what what does this mean? Because here's what I've come to find. So I, I'm um, no longer a full-time pastor. I'm a, a full-time financial advisor now, which some people think, well, wow, you, you, you went into that. I was actually talking to somebody the other day, and <laughs> I thought it was funny. They said, usually people go the other way around because <laughs> they want to do good in the world. Oh, oh. I tell my pastor friends, I say, you know, what I do now, quite honestly, is, is not that much different than what I did before because when you're a financial advisor you're having conversations with people that are intimate I mean you don't just walk up to anybody on the street and say hey let's talk about finances particularly my finances Uh, we also do things that are really holy ground think about it I mean part of what we do is protection pieces and if somebody passes away and you're having a conversation with them you don't know whether that check is going to represent hope for that family or if that check is going to represent the dying loved one so what I do now is, is not that much different than what I did as a pastor. It's just a little bit more focused. And I find that the people that I meet with are often in a stage of transition. 
something has changed in their life that uh, gives them an impetus to sit down with somebody and have a conversation. Either they just got married, maybe they just had their first child, maybe they had another child, maybe they're switching jobs, um, maybe they're moving from one state to the next. And it's in those transition times that transformation happens. When we're transitioning, we have the opportunity to change. Remember, when I moved from Ohio to Panama City, Florida, when I was 15 years old, I remember that having this distinct conversation with myself. Adam, when you go down there, these people don't know you. You can be whoever you want to be. I mean, you can completely reshape yourself and um, become somebody completely different. Transitions are times for transformations. But what's the, what's the trick with transitions? Are they comfortable? Not usually. (laughs) Usually there's a lot of discomfort when you are transitioning. So here's what I want you to do when you come across a passage in the Bible that makes you uncomfortable. Think of it as a transition and an opportunity for transformation. So that's what we're going to do today. We're reading this passage. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. So how do we make sense of this? Um, I am a bit of a nerd. I love to read. I love to read um, science-y type books. Uh, I, I just got done digging into this book called The Biology of Belief. And it was written by a cell, a biologist who studies cells. And kind of his takeaways, he was a, he was a professor at Stanford, he was a professor at the University of Chicago. I mean, he was, he was up there in, in terms of the academic world. And he kind of fleshes out his understanding of, of the cell and how the cell works and how that is integrated into our thought patterns and, and how we live our life. So, as Christians, philosophically speaking, we are what are called dualists. Does that sound familiar to, to some of you? Here's what it means. It means that we believe in the physical world, matter, like we have bodies, this is us. But we also believe we have a soul. Or a spirit. Something that exists outside of our physical body. And in basic philosophical terms, it's called dualism. So there is something um, that is outside of us where we think about things and it changes our behavior. Now, interestingly enough, there is kind of on the edge of science a study going on that tries to bring together both this nature and nurture as well as individualism and collectivism. It's called epigenetics. Anybody heard of it? Okay. Epigenetics is interesting. Let me tell you about a story and a study that they did in 2013. Epi, just so you know, is a Greek term that means upon. So you can think of it as like thought patterns upon the DNA of how it changes things. All right, so stay with me. I know it gets a little technical here. So they studied mice. And in this first generation of mice... They exposed them to a particular odor. The odor was of like blossoms and some nut flavors that they exposed them to. Now when they exposed them to the odors, they shocked the cage. And then they would expose them to the odor and then they would shock the cage. And then they would expose them to the odor and they would shock the cage. 
until these mice became conditioned that every time they smelled that odor, even if they didn't shock the cage, their body would tremble with pain, right? Sad, I know. Here's the interesting part. They allowed those mice to have children. And when they exposed those mice children to the same smell, guess what happened? Without shocking the cage, those children shuddered in pain and fear. Isn't that weird? Here's the other interesting part. Those children had children. And when those children were exposed to the smell, they too shuddered with fear and in pain. So here is something biologically happening outside of our DNA even that's overlaying the DNA that's causing a physical reaction in the world from generation to generation. Does that sound familiar? So I'm not a superstitious, particularly superstitious kind of guy. But the Bible does talk about generational curses. We just read that pattern. What if, and it's a speculating here, but what if there are natural consequences to the choices that we make? And what if those natural consequences are passed down from one generation to the next generation until patterns are created in our ha family history that we've got to overcome? I think there's a scientific basis for it. I think there's a theological basis for it. What we don't show here is a picture of an angry God like throwing lightning bolts at generations. What we see here is a picture of a loving God that's trying to lift us up out of the patterns that we are stuck in. So here's what we have to wrestle with. How do we get out of that? Here's the conclusion of the mice experience. These responses were paired with changes to the brain structures that process odors. So there were physical, biological, neurological changes in the brain. The mice sensitized to the smell as well as their descendants had more neurons that produce a receptor protein known to detect the odor compared with control mice and their progeny, their kids. Structures that receive signals from the smell-detecting neurons and send smell signals to other parts of the brain, such as those involved in processing fear, were also bigger. So I'll pick on myself here. I struggle with depression. What does that mean for my kids? They're probably more likely to struggle with depression. I struggle with fear and anxiety. Not of like spiders and snakes or heights, but of failure and not doing my best. What does that mean for my kids? They're probably going to struggle with fear and anxiety. So how do we, as parents, grandparents, people in leadership, people who are in management that are leading teams at your job, how do we create environments and begin to create cultures that break these cycles for people, that break these patterns so they don't happen over and over and over again? That is the question we're going to answer next week. Why? So the Israelites are um, traveling in the desert now. They've come out of slavery. And every time it gets hard for them, 
Remember, they're transitioning, and transition is hard, and God is trying to transform them. Every time it gets hard for them, what is their inclination? They want to go back. They want to go back to what they know. They want to go back to Egypt. And you see this cycle in people happen over and over again. Maybe you've been caught in this cycle, personally. That whatever it is that you struggle with, and you're just getting to the point where you're starting to to come to grips with it and understand it, and what is your first inclination? You want to go back to what you know. Why? Because freedom is scary. One of my favorite movies of all time, Shawshank Redemption. Anybody with me? Great movie. Very sad movie, but great movie. Anybody remember the character Brooks in Shawshank Redemption? Brooks was the librarian. And Brooks was imprisoned for 55 years. Now they don't say in the movie exactly what he did to to end up there, but we speculate that it was something pretty significant, murder, something along those lines, because he was there for a long time. And Brooks is released from prison. And what does he do? Remember, he moves into his apartment, he gets a job bagging groceries, he's communicating with people back in the cell. Do you remember what he says about society? This moves too fast for him now. He's been so conditioned to this relationship of being imprisoned that when freedom is presented to him, it's too much. He can't take it. And so Brooks ends up taking his own life because of that. I think... It may be a crude analogy, but I think some of us can envision that even in our own lives. Because freedom, here's what freedom means, true, absolute freedom means for you. It means that you are responsible for your actions. Because if you aren't completely free, then you can always point back and say, huh, well this was just handed down to me. And I just do this because it's part of my culture, it's part of my heritage, it's part of my family, it's part of all, part of, part of, part of, part of, part of, part of. And this is where we can get caught in that collectivism thinking, but we need to move beyond that. See, here's the good news of scripture, is that we are not determined to our fate. That God gives us free will to overcome that which holds us back. And I think... That the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is part of that process that God uses to help us overcome those patterns and those habits that we're stuck in. So I'm excited to share with that with you next week. Let me give you um, a little teaser here, though, to help us set us on that path. I really do hope you come back next week, but I want to give you some work to do uh, in between t- today and, and next Sunday. Uh, before I do that, how many of you are here with your significant other or somebody that you know pretty closely? Okay, good. My, I want you to do an exercise for me. We did a little work this morning. You ready? Okay, participatory time. My dad, um, anytime he gets a check in, in the restaurant, he, he makes this face. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a face that your mom or your dad would have made to your significant other. Go. Or if you're a kid, make it to your parent. Go ahead, do it. Do it. All right, now ask that person, have you seen that before? (laughs) Here's the reality, and here's where I'm going with this. 
we pick up things from our parents, we pick up things from our teachers, we pick up things from our leaders, we pick up things from our culture, we pick up things from our peers, we pick up things from all over the place. And if it's true that 40 to 95% of what we do is based off the subconscious mind of how we act in the world, then the only way to overcome those bad habits is with intentionally naming them. Because until we move those habits from the subconscious to the conscious, we don't have a shot at, at changing and transforming them. And that's going to be uncomfortable. Because when you start looking in the mirror and you start wrestling with who you are and how you act in the world and the, the interactions that you have with others and the relationships that you hold with people, the relationships that you hold at work, the relationships that you hold at school and church and so on and so on, you, that gets uncomfortable. So the first step in all this is actually digging inside, digging deep. So here's my challenge to you. First thing is this. Take 30 minutes out of the morning and meditate. And I, I, you don't have to do like, like juju meditation type woo-woo stuff. You can if you want, but whatever. Just get a cup of coffee, go on the back porch, and sit and think. And think about the habits that you've instilled in your life or that have been instilled in you and just say, is this positive or is this negative? The second thing to do with that, write it down. There's something uh, about how we're hardwired with our brain that when we take pen to paper or pencil to paper and we write things down, it makes an indention in us neurologically and gives us a chance to actually kickstart some change in our life. So if you write it down, that's why they say write your goals down. Don't don't type them, don't just think of them, write them down. Keep them in front of you. So write it down, two things. Get a cup of coffee, think about life, write it down. So if you're a parent, grandparent, if you're a boss, if you're a leader, what habits are you passing along to those that you influence or have influence over? And then, so reflect that way, but then also reflect how have you been influenced? For instance, if you've been slipping into unhealthy or immoral shortcuts at work or school because that's the culture and that's just what everybody does or are you on a positive path so here's what I believe I believe we all have the power to make contributions in each other's lives I'm a big proponent of therapy talk therapy anybody else with me oh come on you can raise your hand now go therapy huge proponent of talk therapy um, and Drew and I have done talk therapy together. I think it's super healthy for couples to go do talk therapy together. One of the sessions that we had together, um, Shirley gave us some profound words in our life. And she said, you can't change each other. But you can make contributions to change. So here's where that individualism and collectivism comes in. We don't have the capability of changing one another. So if you got married on the pretense that you were going to change that other person over time, come talk to me. Um, we don't have the ability to, to in, enact change in one another. What we do have the ability is to make contributions toward that change in one another. So I believe we all have the power to make contributions in each other's lives. 
We can't make each other change, but we can contribute to that change. However, the first step is always personal evaluation. What did Jesus say? How dare you point out the speck in your brother or sister's eye when you've got an entire plank in your own? The first step is always personal evaluation. And here's what else I believe. I believe if we commit to this evaluation as a collection of individuals, then, and only then, we actually stand a chance in helping to save the world. It's our only shot. So I encourage you to come along with me, come next week, and uh, we'll take a look at how we enact some of these practices in the Christian faith and the Jewish faith to, to make changes in our lives so that we can make changes in the world. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for this opportunity once again to come into your house, the freedom to do so. We give you thanks for these words that you've given us to wrestle with in the Old Testament of how you, uh, along with Moses, were attempting to shape and change a culture of people. And may God, may we be open that our hearts and our minds are open towards that change and that shaping as well. Be with us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.